If you don't have a Bible, oh, I thought you were bringing those to me. That would be awesome. That would be great. That would be like the coolest thing ever. Only would be cooler is if it would happen during like a Sunday morning service. You'd bring me my frozen drink while I'm up in the pulpit. That'd be awesome. Um, no, Mark chapter 4 is where we are at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are some spare Bibles uh, back there on the table. Uh, if you need an extra note sheet, there's some extra note sheets on that table as well. So please grab one to follow along. Uh, you're certainly going to want to do so this morning as we wrap up Mark chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 4, we're going to be in verse 35 to 41 uh, this morning. So go ahead and stand and we're going to read that together. And actually, I'm going to go all the way through uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. So much shorter section than what we've been doing. So Let's read it together. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. Mark writes, On that day, when evening had come, he, being Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was already, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. You may be seated. Let's pray and jump into our study. So Father, thank you for the privilege to gather now to worship you through our study and our time of meditation together this morning. Uh, it is my hope that these few brief moments that we have together uh, would challenge us, that they would encourage us, that they would convict us where necessary, uh, that we might be ultimately uh, refined in our understanding of who Jesus is and what exactly it is that we are trusting him with with our lives. So um, we need you today. Uh, I know our students have many pressures this time of year as they enter into the final quarter of their school years together and um, pray that uh, with all the distractions and all of the allurements of this world that you would give them focus here in these next few moments to really contemplate uh, their faith and their trust in you. Uh, so give us that strength this morning. Give me wisdom to proclaim this well. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, um, I was watching television. It might have been around the same time as the March Madness tournament a few years ago. Uh, but there was a Capital One commercial that came on TV. And it was interesting because it was with, uh, you guys know who Jennifer Gardner is? So this commercial with Jennifer Gardner came on TV. And I was watching this scene unfold because I was really perplexed, not so much by her, but by the setting behind her. I was looking at this and I was wondering, why in the world does this place look so familiar to me? 
And it wasn't until the very end of the commercial where they switch angles on it and realized they are filming this commercial in the coffee shop of the church campus where I used to intern when I was in California. It was like, I had to message the guy who ran the coffee shop and I'm like, dude, am I, am I interpreting this right? Is that, was that actually filmed on the campus of the church? And he said, yeah, absolutely it was. So really unique in that sense. And whether or not you guys are familiar, you may have seen this commercial, I don't know, but whether or not you are familiar with the location of where this commercial was filmed, most of you are no doubt familiar with the catchphrase or the slogan for Capital One, which is what? What's in your wallet, right? What's in your wallet? Uh, the idea of that being the credit card that you have in your pocket makes all the difference, right? Whatever credit card you have, it is going to change your life. It is going to change the way that you think about your purchases. The right credit card matters. Well, the same idea for us is present in Mark chapter 4, but it is something far more significant than the credit card that you have in your wallet. In fact, really, the question that is going to be asked for us this morning is the question of who is in your boat? Who is in your boat? And maybe we could take that even a step further. Even more importantly than who is in your boat is the question of what do you believe about the one who is in the boat with you. Uh, so what Mark chapter 4 is going to really expose for us this morning is when your faith is shaken, what is it that you, uh, what is it that matters? What matters most is what you believe about Jesus, about who Jesus is and what Jesus exists to do. So when your faith is rattled and it is shaken, what is it that you believe to be true about Jesus. Over the last couple of weeks, what have we seen Jesus doing in Mark chapter 4? What's he been doing? Help me out here. What's he been doing for the last couple of weeks? Yeah. Yeah, he's been teaching, and he's been teaching specifically in parables, these mysteries of the kingdom of God that these disciples are given some, some privilege and some exciting insight into. Uh, we could call these parables lessons on discipleship. In other words, how following Jesus looks and how it works. But Jesus is what we would maybe consider to be a master teacher. And do you know what a master teacher does for his students? What does a great teacher do for his students? He teaches them not just through lessons, but he teaches them through what? Actions. Yeah, through experience. Or we could even say, put it into our own words for you guys who are students in school, he takes them on field trips, doesn't he? Yeah, you got excited about that. Yeah, Jesus decides, you know, one of the best ways that his disciples are going to learn is through experience. And he takes them on a little excursion here. The biggest lessons are not learned in the classroom, but by experience. These men had just been given privileged insights into the kingdom of God. And I think that Jesus recognizes that this can be actually a very unique temptation 
Because you remember that he's, he's saying that they're being given insight and information that not everybody is privy to. And what does that tend to create in people? Maybe a bit of arrogance, right? Maybe a little bit of pride, a bit of saying we're privileged and we, we have all the answers. We have it all figured out. And so what does Jesus want to do to him? He wants to make him see there's still a lot that you have left to learn. He wants to teach them, or we could even say test them, about what they really know and what they really believe specifically about him. And I think that's also true for us, that our faith is really tested when the waters rise and when the storms of life come into our lives, because it's easy to trust Jesus and to be his disciple when things are going really well. But what really matters is what you believe about him when the waters get rough. And so that's what Jesus is going to expose for us this morning in this story. And so as we walk back through this story together, I want to give you five questions to ask yourself about your faith. If, you, if you're someone here this morning, you claim to be a follower of Jesus. If you say that your faith is in Jesus, I want to just give you five reflective questions for you to think about this morning. And what I really, I would like you to answer to yourself. Be honest with yourself as you answer them this morning. So let's look at them together as we go back through the story together. Question number one uh, is this. Do you take Jesus at his word? Do you trust Jesus when it comes to his promises and his plans? Do you take him at his word? We begin in verse 35 where it says, on that day. What day is it talking about? What day are we in? There's not a specific day. It's the day that he's teaching all these parables, right? So all of this from Mark chapter 4 is like all one giant day. He's been teaching them all day. And it's the same day he's been teaching parable. But it says that evening has come. He's done a full day of teaching and instruction to people. That's exhausting. That's tiring. And he says to his disciples then, let's go to the other side. In other words, he's talking about the other side of the, the lake or the, the Sea of Galilee, which is where he had been teaching. Remember, he was out uh, by the sea there. He was standing in the boat and he was saying, uh, listen, let's, let's go ahead. Let's, let's get out of here and let's go to the other side of the sea. And so it's important for us to understand right here at this point, what is Jesus's specific plan at this point? What is his plan that he has given to his disciples? Shout it out. What is his plan? I promise this is not a trick question. What's his, what is he promising them and what is he planning for them to do? Hint, I just said it in verse 35. Yes. Go across the lake. Go across the seas as let's go to the other side. That is his plan, and that is what he has instructed and told his disciples. This is what we are going to do. And that's important. Hold that in your mind for just a moment, right? And so verse 36 here, it says that he left the crowd. It's interesting because people are always wanting more from Jesus, and yet there's a point when he has to withdraw. He has to, he has to, to get away. And it says that they took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. That's kind of an interesting phrase, just as he was. What do they mean by that? Uh, just as he was, meaning just as he was 
dressed or just as he was prepared. I think what it's just saying is like, do you remember back in chapter 4, verse 1, the crowds were so big that Jesus had to do what? He had to get into a boat and push out a little bit from the water so that people could hear him and see him. And he wouldn't get crushed by all of them, right? And so just as he was, meaning is Jesus was already in the boat. And so they decide, okay, Jesus is in the boat. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to push off and we're going to venture out into the water and cross to the other side. Now, this is interesting because we're like, what, what in the world are these boats like in the first century? Well, in the first century, uh, boats would have looked something like, well, Hopefully it didn't look like this, right? This is, this is the uh, remains. Uh, back in 1986, they found a uh, discovery by the Sea of Galilee of a first century fishing boat. They were able to date it to probably the first century, so like maybe 60 AD, which means within about a generation of Jesus' lifetime. This would have been what the size of something would have looked like. So from this, we get an idea that maybe a standard fishing boat back in that day would have been roughly about maybe 27 feet long and about seven and a half feet wide. And to give you an idea of what that looks like, guess what? That's why your chairs are set up the way they are this morning, so that you guys can see what your fishing boats look like. Because you would have been able to fit roughly about, they think about 15 full-size men inside one of those fishing boats. So congratulations, although you guys are now not inside of Or you've been thrown overboard by your, your team there. So we've got three fishing boats here. Just to give you a little bit of a perspective of how big one of these boats would have been like with all these men who are traveling uh, at this given time. See, I do have a reason for my madness of setting up the chairs each Sunday. But Mark notes here, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you guys have ever picked up on this, but Mark gives us a detail that other people don't. And that's that there were other boats with them. Now, I don't really know what that means. In fact, most of the research I came across this week, nobody's really able to answer the question as to what in the world these other boats are doing and what's happening to them. We only know about the boat that Jesus is in at this time. But what we do know about Jesus and his boat is that uh, a great storm arises, right? Uh, They get into the middle of the lake, and a great windstorm picks up. And that's not too uncommon for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, From a geographic perspective, which I know you guys all love geography here, so I'll give you a little bit of geography lesson. Uh, The Sea of Galilee sits about what's called 700 feet below sea level. So that's pretty far below sea level. Uh, Mount Hermon, which is kind of to the northeast, uh, about 20 to 30 miles from the lake there, uh, rises as high as about... Uh, 9,200 feet. And so you have within such a short distance there a drop of almost 10,000 feet. Now, for those of you who don't know your weather 101, right? So you're getting geography, you're getting history, and you're getting weather this morning, just for your information, right? Weather 101, uh, we know that, especially up in the mountains, you get cold air, cold fronts, down on low sea, uh, kind of trapped moisture of water, you get warm air. What happens when cold air meets warm air? Lukewarm air. <laughs> it's not a horrible answer. What else happens? Yeah. Wind. Wind. 
If you know anything about living in the Midwest, you know this is true for cold fronts and warm fronts. When they hit each other here in the Midwest, uh, we get tornadoes, right? Uh, we get incredible windstorms. In fact, it was kind of ironic that as I was writing this message on Friday, I was doing so from my house. And if you remember what happened on Friday, Friday was a wind advisory. I was watching out the window as like my neighbor's trash cans were blowing across the street and their garbage was going everywhere. I'm like, Lord, are you trying to tell us something here? It was just really ironic that those things were happening. Now, here's the deal. Jesus had a couple of guys in his boat who were experienced fishermen. They, they'd seen bad weather before. They had seen storms before. But even they had experienced nothing quite like this. Uh, it's, it's very interesting that no matter, no matter how much you've been around something before, especially nature, God still puts you in situations where <laughs> it feels like the first time and it scares you beyond belief. Uh, I remember back in 2016, kid you not, my third week on the job as a youth pastor here at Newcastle, we were going on a field trip, <laughs> ironic, field trip, right, uh, with the youth to the Ark Encounter trip down in, uh, down in Kentucky, right, to see the big Noah's Ark replica that's down there. Well, that Saturday, I think it was Saturday we were, or Sunday, we were traveling back, and we hit this huge storm on the way back. I kid you not, I've never seen wind like that before, and I've never seen lightning like that before. Again, I grew up in the Midwest. I've seen tornadoes. I've seen thunder, lightning, stuff like that before. The lightning was like a literal strobe effect the whole time while you're trying to drive. I'm driving a 15-passenger van with countless lives behind me, right? Some of you, your siblings, were in the van there with me. And all I could think to myself while I was driving was, this will be the shortest stint of any youth pastor at Newcastle Bible Church because we're all going to die. <laughs> Felt like that at times. Like, this, this was as bad a weather as I had ever seen and definitely had ever driven in. I'm like, of course, it would be on my first real adventure with the group here. And we're all going to die. We're all going to perish. For both me and for the disciples in those moments, there was a temptation to begin to doubt what? It was a temptation to doubt that we were going to make it to our final destination, where we were supposed to go. But the interesting thing is that Jesus had told them the plan from the start. He said the plan is we are going to cross to the other side. Yet circumstances were leading them to believe that can't be true. There's no way that we're going to make it to the other side in conditions like this. And yet, do you notice there was a reason I had us read all the way down through chapter 5, verse 1. Spoiler alert, they make it to the other side, don't they? Chapter 5, verse 1, they came to the other side. I think it's significant that Mark writes it that way. Because what was Jesus' promise to them? He says... Let's go to the other side. And then in 5.1 he says, when they got to the other side. In other words, just as Jesus had said. 
see, since Jesus is true to his word, and yet difficult situations cause us to hesitate at such promises. It's amazing how whenever circumstances in life change and life gets hard, we are prone to doubt Jesus and his promises to us. And yet, Jesus always proves true to his word. He brings them through. The question is, as we look at the story, is how exactly did he do that? In order to get there, we have to venture through question number two, which is this. Do you ever question if Jesus cares about you? Do you ever question if Jesus cares about you? Verse 38, where was Jesus in the midst of this panic? Where was he? Yeah, Allison. Where was he sleeping? Yeah, he was in the boat, right? This ex- same boat that is taking on water that is supposedly about to sink. Where is Jesus? He's in that boat. But Jesus is not bailing out water with all the other guys. Jesus is not trying to stabilize the sails that are whipping every which direction. Guess what? Jesus is not even praying. Like, at least he could maybe do that much, right? Maybe he could send out a quick prayer to God, right? I mean, if he's supposed to be this Messiah-like figure, maybe he could try to intercede for them at least, right? No. Instead, he is taking a cat nap in the stern of the ship. And notice that Mark even gives the detail that pillow was included, <laughs> right? He was not just sleeping. He was sleeping on the cushion. Where did this cushion come from? I have no idea. But it's important. He, Jesus is comfortable. He's sleeping. And isn't it fascinating that this is the only time in all of the Bible that Jesus is recorded as sleeping? It's the only time. And he's doing so in the middle of a storm. Now, obviously, this is reminding us of one thing, that Jesus was fully human Not only was he fully God, but he was fully human, right? A long day of teaching is tiring, right? Sundays like last Sunday where I preached two times in main service by lunchtime, I'm pretty hangry and I'm pretty tired and I'm ready to kind of just check out for the rest of the day. That's only half a day of teaching. Jesus has been teaching all day. It's exhausting. It is tiring work. But more than that, sleep is also a sign of what? What does sleep also show us? What do you think? What is sleep an indication of? Yeah. What's that? That he felt safe enough to sleep. Sleep is an expression of trust. Sleep is an expression of dependence. It's a way of saying, God... You got this. I don't need to be awake. You are the one who controls all things. It's an ultimate expression of trust. Now, the problem is the disciples, the disciples don't interpret it that way, do they? No, they interpret his actions as distant and unloving. They had seen Jesus heal diseases. They had seen Jesus perform miracles. They had seen Jesus cast out demons. 
And yet, in their minds, they're like, this is how we're going to go out. We're going to go out sinking in the middle of the sea. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. And so what did they do? Uh, they finally reach a point of desperation where they, they shake him, they yell in his ear, and in so doing, they ask him a rebuking and piercing question by saying to him, Jesus, we're about to die do you even care? Do you even care that we, some of your closest friends, are about to perish? I want to ask you this morning. Have you ever asked that question, whether it be out loud or in your heart, about God? God, do you even care? Do you even care that my friendships are struggling and they're falling apart? Do you even care that my parents won't stop fighting with one another? Do you even care that my grandma's cancer isn't getting any better? And maybe even along with that, are you even there? Not only do you, do you care, but are you even present? Are you even real? Are you even who you say you are to be? The good news for you and for the disciples is that Jesus is there in the boat. And contrary to what it looks like in the moment, he cares. And he cares more deeply than you could ever imagine he cares. And he shows that to us in verse 39. Because notice it says that he awoke, and when he wakes up, he does something unique. It says that he rebukes the wind and the sea. Rebukes is like the word of a parent to a child. It's the only type of language that can be used of a creator to creation. In other words, it's a sign of somebody who's in his rightful place and someone or something that is in submission to his authority. what does he speak? He speaks peace. He says to the storm and to the sea, peace be still. By speaking peace, he puts everything back into its appropriate place, into its right order. We could put it this way. Peace is the calm that comes from knowing Jesus is in control. Peace is the calm that comes from knowing that Jesus is in control. That is why God promises that you can have peace even when life is hard, even when things are seemingly out of control. He is promising you that you can have peace. In fact, he says in Philippians chapter 4 that the peace of Christ is what guards your heart and your mind. Doesn't mean that everything is going to work out maybe the way that you want it to, but it is a promise that you can be calm and know that God remains in control even when it might not look like he is in control. Jesus has an interesting question for his disciples in response to their reaction to the situation. It's the same question we have to ask ourselves this morning. Why are you so afraid in the midst of trials? 
Why are you so afraid in the middle of trials? That's what he asks them in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? His immediate response in the aftermath of the storm was to ask two questions of his disciples. And the first being, why are you so afraid? What is it about this storm that you got you so worked up in the first place? The truth is, trials and hardships tend to bring out the worst in us, don't they? And more than that, when situations put us under pressure, they tend to bring out our fears maybe more than our faith. Our worries more than our trust. It's easy to say that maybe we would have responded differently if we were in the disciples' situation, if we were in their shoes. But the reality is that we often respond far worse than them under much easier of trials and circumstances in our own lives, don't we? So you need to ask yourself this morning, when hard situations come into my life, specifically ask yourself, what am I afraid that I'm losing? What am I afraid that I'm not getting that maybe I think I deserve in this moment? What is it that I'm fearful of that might be taken from me? And ultimately then ask yourself in response to that, what does that reveal about where my hope in this life rests? It's a very revealing question. But I think trials and hardships and difficult things that you go through in life reveal a lot of where your hope is resting. And really that's the point of Jesus' second question that he asks them here in our fourth one for our study this morning. But what are you trusting when life gets hard? Jesus' second question to them in verse 40 is, have you still no faith? That's a, that's a pretty rocking question. The rebuke of the sea turns into kind of a rebuke of the disciples. And as such, it calls for us to consider what exactly are we trusting in when life gets hard? Do challenging circumstances cause you to become increasingly independent? Saying, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. Kind of like the disciples in the moment. We'll, we'll take care of this. We'll figure this out. Don't need anyone else. I don't need God. I can, I can try to buckle down and do this on my own. I need to be strong enough. I need to be brave enough. I need to be wise enough. Or are such situations causing you to be increasingly dependent upon God? as your source of strength, as your source of courage, as your source of wisdom? Are you quick to run to him rather than away from him? For the disciples, it started out kind of poorly, right? But fortunately, it drove them eventually to turn to Jesus. But this question of trust is really built on a final question of who is Jesus to you? I think that's a really important question for you to answer this morning. Who is Jesus to you? And I don't mean that in the sense of like, oh, all of us can have a different perspective of who Jesus is. And it, that's really what matters is who Jesus is to you. No, I'm asking yourself, who is Jesus to you in light of who the Bible claims that he is? Ironically enough, the disciples are more afraid after the storm stops 
than they were in the middle of the storm. Did you, do you realize that? When you look at this story, the disciples are petrified. They are mortified at the very end of this story, more so than they were when their lives were at stake. Why? Because this man who was in the boat with them had just done something far beyond what they had expected. I don't know what they were looking for him to do in the moment when they woke him up, other than to just claim, you're not helping, you're not doing anything, obviously you don't care about us. But they didn't expect him to stop a storm in the middle of the, the lake, right? Why did this cause them to fear? Well, look over at Psalm 107 real quick. Psalm 107 is really interesting. I think I forgot to put this on the slide, so I'm going to turn to it real quick. Psalm 107, I think, is really enlightening for what's happening in this situation here. Psalm 107, verse 28 Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Now, this was written long before Jesus, but does that not just sound like what they just experienced for themselves? And here's the deal. They're good Jews. They know their... Old Testament. They are familiar with what the teaching of the Old Testament had said. They were no doubt familiar with an account like this. But who does it say stopped the storm? Who calmed the waves of the sea? Verse 28, they cried to the Lord. Notice it says Lord all caps, which as we learned in previous weeks in main service, that means Yahweh. That is the name of God himself. Here's the point of what I'm trying to explain to you here is what they had just seen Jesus do were the things that only God can do. They had just seen Jesus do something, speak with such authority, express such power that could undeniably be the act of God himself. Not only was he most likely the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, but what they had just witnessed were the things that only God could do. To the point that I love the way John MacArthur puts it, he says it this way, the only thing scarier than the storm outside of your boat is realizing that God himself is inside your boat. That's an incredible reality. To realize that it is God himself who is there with you. And so I ask you again this morning, who is Jesus to you? Is Jesus just some accessory that you put on in your life? You put them on whenever you want to, but you know what? When it's not convenient for you, you're allowed to just kind of take them off. You compartmentalize them into yourself. And so he's a nice little accessory to have, but that's really all he is to you. 
would you say that Jesus is more like your cosmic vending machine? In other words, you'll come to him whenever you need something, and when you do so, you'll make it very clear what you want, and you want it on demand, right? So he's, he's there for you whenever you need him. Would you say that Jesus is your life jacket? You really don't need him for the most part in life, but when life gets really bad and you feel like you're really in danger, you really need him, then you'll put him on. Then you'll come to him. Then you'll say, I need you. Is Jesus your life coach? He's there to help motivate you, and he's, he's there to really help you get ahead in life and achieve your dreams and to, to make the most and to be your best person right now in life. Is that Jesus to you? Is he just your big motivational life coach? Or is Jesus God? Is Jesus the ruler the creator, the authority of all things. Because if he is, that changes everything. See, the one who, when he speaks, the wind and the waves give their full attention. The one who is both high and mighty and yet gentle and lowly to stoop down to your level. I don't know about you, but to me, that's, that's, that's the Jesus that's worth following. Not the Jesus who's just some accessory you put on whenever you want to. Not the Jesus who's just some type of vending machine that you just get whatever you want out of. Not the Jesus who's a life jacket who you just put on whenever life gets really rough. Not the Jesus who's a life coach to just get you ahead in life. No, this is the type of Jesus that is worthy of forsaking all things in this world to follow. That is the Jesus that this passage puts forth for us this morning. The fact that he is God and he is high and he is mighty, and yet, student, that is for your good. That is for your good. And so as we think about everything that Mark has set forth for us in these questions is laid out for this morning, here's some points that you need to take away as you leave here this morning. Point number one, as we acknowledged earlier, it's easier to trust Jesus when life is calm. I think we all in this room, I think, recognize this. That when life is good, or we could say when life is going our way and on our terms, we're big fans of Jesus. Jesus is awesome, right? Man, I love being a follower of Jesus when life is going really well. I would say that's kind of one of the dangers of even kind of growing up a Christian in the United States is because we live in a culture that really thrives on comfort and success. And so this is a really hard culture to be a Christian in because we have a very distorted view of what it looks like to be a Christian. Because to us, we think being a Christian means things should go well for us. Whereas in most places of the world, being a Christian, that does not mean that's how it's going to work out for you. It's not that we don't have problems, but we definitely live in a culture that's built much more on comfort, ease, and privilege. And we begin to think that trust in Jesus means that everything was just going to go well for us. 
And I think this story is meant to challenge our thinking on that very reality in a major way. In fact, I think it teaches us this morning that Jesus actually leads us into trials to grow our faith, to humble us, and to make us more dependent. That should be a little shocking some ways in how it's worded, and yet I think it speaks very truthfully to what the Bible teaches. I think it's consistent with what Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite authors, what he has to say about the story. Listen to what he says. He says, contrary to the picture sometimes painted of the Christian life, Jesus did not solve all the disciples' problems and protect them from trials and perplexities. In actual fact, sometimes he led them quite deliberately into them. Remember how I said Jesus is taking them all on a field trip here for a particular reason, right? He's teaching them this very reality. He's taking them into this to grow them, to humble them, to make them more dependent upon him. It's consistent with what we learned from James in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where James tells us, and remember, James, this is the James who is the brother of Jesus. So he's got some unique insight, doesn't he? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith does what? It produces steadfastness. Not stead slowness, steadfastness. In other words, it's meant to push you forward, not hold you back. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. I tell you, are trials meant for your good or for your harm? They're meant for your good. We are not naturally wired to think this way, but trials are actually God's grace gift to you. They test where our trust truly relies and seeks to make us more humble and dependent upon God. Again, that's the case for the disciples. Remember, they had been given all this privileged information about the parables. They were maybe thinking to themselves, well, we're the privileged, right? All these other people aren't getting all this information. We obviously have things figured out. Life is good for us. And what does Jesus immediately do? He says, not so fast. Uh, I need to refine you. You're not there yet. You don't know it all. And so let's, let's test this. Let's tease this out. Let's, let's refine this a little bit more. You may say to yourself, but... Didn't the story result in the disciples fearing Jesus, not trusting Jesus? And I think this is where we have to realize that those two things don't necessarily have to be opposed to each other, but they actually can work together. Because I think the third point we see in this is that God often uses fear of him to drive us to greater faith in him. Fear and faith don't have to be opposed to each other. In fact, God uses them a lot of times to work together to grow us in our faith and our dependence upon God. Uh, that was actually the case for the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. We learned that a few weeks ago when Pastor Kevin taught us on the Exodus story. In Exodus 14, after they crossed the Red Sea, this is the summary of everything we see and uh, everything that had led up to that point. So Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people, what? They feared. They feared the Lord and then his servant Moses. The fear of God's power shows us that he is the one who's worthy of submission, right? That's not a bad thing when God puts his power on display because he's reminding us, hey, 
I'm the one who's in charge. I have the power. I have the ability. I have the authority. And that's a good thing. I want you to come to me as a result of that. Yeah, there is a thing as a healthy fear of the Lord because we recognize who he is in relation to who we are. Sometimes the reason we don't fear God is because we have too high a view of ourselves and too low a view of who God is because we make God into our own image. We want him to be the God in our mind and what we would conjure up of what a God would look like because of who we are. But the fear of the Lord means, no, we have a right understanding that we are far more sinful and far more dependent and weak than we realize. And God is far more holy and righteous and authoritative and powerful than we could ever imagine. That's why this is important. I think it's also important to remember in the midst of all this that Jesus has already rescued you, student, from your greatest threats. In the middle of life's storms, it's tempting to think that your problems are the greatest threat to you in that moment. <laughs> I know this is true for teenagers because I, I, I was in this world with you. I promise. I'm not that far removed from it. I remember what it's like when things are not going well. You feel like everything in the world is crashing down around you. And that situation, that threat is the most devastating thing that could possibly be happening to you. But here is where you must remember and you have to remind yourself of what God has already provided for you in Christ Jesus. This is where Romans 8 is really helpful. This is a great verse to remember. Paul writes, if God is for us, who then can be against us? Why? Why does he say that? Listen to what he says in the next line. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's his point. Student, if you put your faith in Jesus, guess what? He has rescued you from your greatest threat. What is your greatest threat? What is it? What's the greatest threat against your life? Or do you not know? What's the greatest possible thing that could happen to you? Not having Jesus. In other words, we could say eternal separation from God, right? Eternal punishment by God and hell. And so if God has provided you Christ, and then you have put your faith and trust in him, guess what? The greatest threat to your life that could have ever happened to you, which is judgment by God, he's already removed you from that. He has rescued you from that. Everything else, student, whether or not you realize it, and again, I realize circumstances we, we set our eyes so much on our circumstances and not on truth and reality. But in those moments, we are quick to forget that God has already saved us from the greatest threat. Everything else pales in comparison to what God has already rescued you from. And so when you're tempted to question if Jesus cares about you like the disciples were in that moment, remember this quote from Sinclair Ferguson, another great quote. The very reason... Listen, I really want you to listen to what he says here because I love, love what he says. The very reason that Jesus was in the boat, indeed the very reason he was in the world, and the reason that he was going to die on the cross was precisely because he cared for them. 
Isn't that interesting? In that moment when they were questioning whether Jesus had come, the very reality that Jesus was even there on earth was a reminder to them of his ultimate mission, that he had come not to rescue them from this storm, but to rescue them from their sin. Does Jesus care? Absolutely he cares. He loves you so much that he was willing to come into this world to die and to rescue you from your sin. Yes, you can be sure that he cares for you. Fifth, if Jesus is truly God, and guess what? He is. Then you can rest peacefully. The gift that Jesus offers to his disciples, to true disciples, is that promise of peace that we talked about earlier. That promise that the peace of Christ will guard your heart from your mind when you have your faith in him. And the reason that Jesus could sleep in the boat was because of complete trust in God, no matter how bad life got. And so if Jesus really is God, like the story shows us, then really today is a call for you to be still and know that Jesus is God. This is a message that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This is the the rich and the true reality of what Psalm 46 verses 1 through 3 talks about where God, uh, where the psalmist writes that God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters be uh, roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, everything in life, all these natural forces, all these things are giving way, just like we saw in the story with the, 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 the sea and the waves and the, the wind, all of it together. All that is out of control. And yet, in the middle of it, what does he say? Be still and know that I am God. As God, what did Jesus say to the wind and the sea in that moment? Peace. Be still. Be still. Student, Jesus is commanding you to do the same thing whenever life gets you going. When it seems like it's spinning out of control and our faith is breaking. What he calls for you to do in that moment is to be still and to remember who he is. That he is indeed God Almighty and you can indeed trust him. Let's pray. God, again, thank you for these few brief moments to study together. Thank you for the the word picture and the beauty of what you have illustrated for us in this story, that you are a God who is true to your word, that you are a God who is worthy of our worship, and you are a God who is certainly worthy of our trust and our adoration, even when life gets tough. I pray, Lord, for many of us, we need to be refined in this. Some of our students here, honestly, Lord, they need you to take them through some rough challenges in life to really test the genuineness of their faith. And that is a gracious gift. That's not something you do to destroy people. It's something that you do to refine them. And so I pray that you would refine them. I pray that you would help them to honestly answer some of the questions that we've posed here this morning so that they would know where they stand before you, our righteous God. Thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you for your immense grace in refining and growing our faith. Cause us, Lord, to be increasingly more dependent upon you. For the glory of your name, we ask. Amen.